Well, amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, uh, Exodus 20 verses 18 through 21 will be our text this Lord's Day. Uh, if you're new to Bloomfield Baptist, just to catch you up to where we are, I've been preaching through the book of Exodus and last Lord's Day. Uh, we finished with the 10th commandment. Uh, we've spent a couple months now walking through the Ten Commandments, and, and now this Lord's Day and next we're going to look at the people's response now in Exodus 20 to God's Word. And so just by way of review, uh, we see here in Exodus how the people gathered there at Mount Sinai, and there was thunder and lightning, the mountain was trembling, uh, there was smoke there, and God spoke to the people from the mountain and gave them the Ten Words the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And now what we see is their response to that. How they respond to the Word of God. So we're going to look at Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21. And out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand together as I read this passage for us. And this is what God's Holy Word says. Now when all the people saw the thunder... And the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. If you would, pray with me. Father, as we have seen in recent weeks through our study, Your Word here, the Ten Commandments, they, they teach us much about who You are, who we are in our desperate need for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray you would continue to teach us along those lines today as we look at the response of your people to your word, that, that you might lead us today, your people here, to respond in repentance and faith. And, Lord, that we might be overwhelmed with your grace and goodness and the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, you have probably heard that there's an event tomorrow, <laughs> uh, the, the Great American Eclipse. Uh, if you have not heard that, uh, you have probably been asleep for a few months, and so we're glad you woke up. Uh, it's been everywhere, all over the news and the papers. It seems that you can't really turn anywhere without seeing a mention of the eclipse. In fact, in recent days, uh, what the conversation has been is the glasses. Everybody needs glasses. And so just a, a little side note here, especially kids, but adults too, uh, it's never a good idea to stare at the sun in general, uh, but especially tomorrow during the eclipse, uh, you need to have special glasses if you're going to look at it. And so uh, a lot of folks have been uh, selling, distributing glasses. I've got mine. See, these are pretty stylish looking. You like that? So... Uh, if you were wanting to get up and leave church early, this would be a good time because uh, I can't see anything through these glasses, and that's kind of the point. Uh, they are to block out uh, what could be a, a harmful situation. In fact, if you were to try to look at the eclipse without the glasses, uh, you may have temporary or even permanent blindness 
Uh, all kinds of bad things could happen. And so uh, things have gotten a, a little wacky. People are spending all kinds of money for these. Uh, I saw just yesterday where people are willing to pay hundreds, even up to $1,000 for these online right now. And so if you need a pair and you want to write a big check to the building fund today, we could probably work something out uh, to get you a pair of glasses. Um, but it's actually a good thing that people are willing to go to such lengths to get these because uh, it's, it's evident that we're heeding a warning. Uh, we've been given a warning. That warning's gone out in our culture. This, uh, this great eclipse is going to uh, come through our, our country from Oregon down to South Carolina. It's going to cross over the homes of about 11 million people. Uh, we know that, that many others, thousands and thousands of others, have traveled from all over the world to, to come to places where they can view the eclipse. And it's a good, healthy thing that people are listening to a warning that they've been given, understanding that if they don't heed that warning, great danger, great harm could come. I'm encouraged by that because in general we tend to be a people who don't heed warnings very well. And you think about how accustomed we've gotten to just ignoring warnings. Now there's all kinds of warnings out there that we just most times don't even read warning labels. A lot of times we ignore warning signs. Uh, I read just recently about a book that's come out that's uh, about many people who have died at the Grand Canyon. If you've been to the Grand Canyon, you've probably seen there's signs everywhere that say uh, don't get close to the edge, you might slip on the edge, and yet every year uh, several people fall into the Grand Canyon. Uh, they just ignore the warnings. And so it's a good thing when we see people actually responding to a warning. And that's exactly what we see in the passage today. Oh, we see that God's people have been given this great warning from the Lord, this great instruction, these ten words, these commandments. And what we see in the passage today, in verses 18 through 21, is they respond to this. They, they heed this warning. And so what I want us to do is just to look at these verses in light of the same questions we asked when we went through each of the commandments. If you're with us, hopefully you remembered that we asked three questions of each of the commandments. What does it teach us about the character of God? Or what does it teach us about the heart of man? And how does Jesus transform this commandment? And so I want to ask those three questions about God and about man and about Jesus in reference to the response now that we see from the Israelites to these ten words. And we'll begin there with that first question and that first point in your notes. What do we learn from their response about the character of God. And we're reminded here, point one, that God is holy. God is holy. Again, the setting here is that there are thunder and flashes of lightnings and sound of a trumpet. This is, by the way, not something that just happens again. I think this is what's been going on the whole time the commandments were being given. If you remember there in Exodus 19, it's a very similar description. And so as God gathers His people on Mount Sinai, that the supernatural is taking place here, it's obvious that, that God's presence has descended on this mountain, that there's dark smoke, there's thunder, there's lightning. The mountain itself is trembling. And so the context here then would be that this is continuing as God is speaking His Word. And so notice there in verse 18 how the people respond. The text tells us that they were afraid that they trembled, and that they stood far off. They were afraid, they trembled, and they stood far off. Now just think about that for a moment. 
that God told Moses to establish a perimeter around the mountain. And if you remember, he told Moses to tell the people if they or even any of their livestock were to cross that perimeter and try to come up the mountain, that they would immediately die. But what we see here is that the people aren't exactly creeping towards that perimeter thinking, well, how close can we get before something bad happens? No, in response to the Word of God, they are actually moving farther from the mountain. They are afraid and they are trembling. And so the question would be, why are they so afraid? Why are they so afraid that the Scripture would actually say that they are shaking and they're standing far off? And I think the answer is real clear. I think the answer is that they are afraid because they've been exposed to the holiness of God. They've been exposed to the righteous and perfect standard of God's Word. And we see throughout the Scripture that that's how God's Word, God's law is described. It is righteous, it is holy, it is perfect. King David in Psalm 19 says it this way. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. We see this consistent attribute given to the Word of God and to God Himself. He is righteous and He is holy. And that is His law as well. It is righteous and it is holy. And so essentially what the Ten Commandments do is they have the opposite effect of these glasses. See, these glasses are to be worn tomorrow so that they might mute, so that they might lessen the impact of the sun on you. Normal sunglasses, I understand, they work at about five times. They reduce the effects of the sun about five times on your eye. These are supposed to reduce it about 50,000 times. And so you put these on so that you will not see clearly the sun. Because if you try to stare at the sun, you might go blind. But the law of God has the opposite effect. The the law of God makes things clearer for us. The, The law of God shines a light on the glory of God and it shows us clearly the holiness of God. And that word holy means to be set apart. It means to be separated from that which is common. And so that's why when we see God use this word of Himself, of His creation, He's talking about His, his set-apartness. Like for example, in Exodus chapter 3, when God calls Moses there to the burning bush, you remember what He tells Moses? He tells him to take his shoes off because he's standing on holy ground. That that ground was set apart. That ground was consecrated because the Lord's presence was there. And God describes His people as a holy people. Why? Because they were people who were set apart from the pagan nations around them. As we looked at our teaching on the Sabbath, it's called the Holy Sabbath to the Lord in Exodus 16. Why? Because that day was to be set apart. It was to be separate. It was to be holy. And so we see here that, that, that God is a holy God, that He is set apart, that He is righteous. And what that means, and what we can learn from the people here, is that we should not then have a casual approach to God. And yet we live in a culture where people are very casual 
and how they approach God. And I've talked to people often about the gospel, about coming to church, and a lot of times people say, well, you know, I've got a problem with the church, I've got problems with Christians, you know, me me and God just do our own thing. And kind of like they're they're hanging out with a friend. We, We do our own thing. And so I'll often ask them, well, tell me about the thing you do with God. What is your thing? Well, you know, I just, you know, I just, when I'm out in the woods, I'm just, I talk to God. Okay. What does that mean? Well, you know, that's just kind of where I go to, to clear my mind. And they talk about God like He's their, he's their buddy and they're just out for a walk. There, there's no reverence, there's no holiness, and, and what's greatly missing in that equation is there's no word from God. It's all about me. It's all about my experience. And we have this casual approach to that which is far from casual we have this casual approach to the holiness of God. Friends, before we can fully understand the gospel, before we can even understand the depths of our sin, we need to understand the holiness of God. We need to understand the greatness of God. We need to understand that, that God is not just this casual, uh, approachable, divine being. That, that He is good. Make no mistake about that. He is, he is good. But he is someone to be feared. That points made very clearly in a book that many of you may have read, perhaps your kids, you've read it to them, the series by C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. If you're familiar with that, you'll understand what I'm talking about. If you're not familiar with that, this will be really confusing, but go with me here. In The Chronicles of Narnia, specifically in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you've got this, this group of children who are transported to this land of Narnia. And in the land of Narnia, that the Christ figure there is Aslan. He's a lion. Uh, there are animals that can talk. There's all kinds of uh, wonderful things there in Narnia. But what Lewis does through this imaginary land is really gives a clear picture of the gospel. And so very early in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you've got Lucy and Susan who are sisters, and they're talking to these two animals, to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they're asking about Aslan. They want to understand who Aslan is and what Aslan is like. And I'll just read to you a section of Lewis's book, beginning with Lucy. She says, is he a man? Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dear, even make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then is he safe, said Lucy? Safe, said Mr. Beaver? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Friends, that, that's exactly who, who we see God to be in the Scripture. He, he is not safe. Uh, apart from Christ, He is not even approachable. But He is good. He is holy. He is righteous. 
But the reason we see God's people responding in this way and not running towards His holiness and instead moving away from His holiness is because by being exposed to His law and His Word, they not only have a better understanding of who He is, they have a better understanding of who they are and who we are. Which brings us to that second question there in our outline. What do we learn from their response about the heart of man? And we're reminded of this point too, that man is sinful. See, the Scripture tells us that, that through the law comes a knowledge of sin. That the law is given that we might understand what sinners we are. And on a much lesser, lesser scale and way, it might be like this. Imagine uh, you were driving in an area you weren't familiar with and you're kind of out there on the open road and, and you're just kind of cruising along and things are going great and you, you feel like you're doing fine. You're probably obeying the speed limit. You know, you're going whatever speed you think feels comfortable. People are driving along the way and then you look over and you notice a speed limit sign. You, you notice the law. And then you look down and you notice you're going way over what the law is. <laughs> So see, the law there, that, that sign, helps you to see what was already happening but you were unaware of or didn't really, weren't really paying attention to. It helps point out that you indeed were doing something wrong. And that's what God's Word does for us. Rather than leave us to ourselves just to figure it out, just to go do our thing, well, God gives us His Word so that we might see our desperate need. And what we see here at Mount Sinai is God as He gives His Word to the people, and not only has He given this instruction for them to live by, but in doing that, He showed them this standard that they fail to meet. And in showing them this standard that they fail to meet, I think automatically they begin to think, not only are they sinners, but what it is they deserve for their sin. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, he said this, Terrible grandeur may also have been intended to suggest to the people the condemning force of the law. Not with a sweet sound of a harp, nor with the sound of angels was the law given, but with an awful voice from amid a terrible burning. By reason of man's sinfulness, the law worketh wrath. And to indicate this, it was made public with accompaniments of fear and death the battalions of the omnipotent marshaled upon every scene the dread artillery of God, adding emphasis to every syllable. The tremendous scene at Sinai was also in some respects a prophecy, if not a rehearsal, of the day of judgment. What God brings in His holiness is not just an awareness to the people that God is holy. He brings with it an awareness that they indeed are sinful. And so, what does man do in his sin? Well, we see in the garden, man, man hides. And we see so often man gets defensive. But notice here what man does when he becomes aware of his sin. They, he, he calls out to Moses. The, the people here basically say to Moses, well, we need you to, to help us. And they call out to him. And you may think of it this way. One commentator pointed out that oftentimes the first thing people do when they get in trouble is they hire a lawyer. <laughs> Those in the law profession could probably uh, agree with that and support that. 
Now, oftentimes when we're in trouble, we immediately think, how can we get out of trouble? We need help in our time of trouble. And here the people, as they realize what tremendous trouble they're in, because God's standard is holiness, and they fall short in their sinfulness, immediately they're looking for someone to help them. But not like we might look for a lawyer. Not in a way where perhaps for some, where they say, well, I need someone to get me out of this, or I need someone to prove my innocence. See, God's people aren't, coming to the mountain and getting closer to it and saying to God, okay, you've given us these Ten Commandments. We're doing pretty good there, God. In fact, we think we're okay. No, they hear God's Word and they begin to retreat and move the other direction because they realize their sinfulness. And their response to sin is one of distancing themselves because they realize the judgment they deserve. They realize the depths of their sin. And just consider for a moment, compare for a moment, the response of God's people to His Word and the reality of their sin here at Mount Sinai and the way people respond to sin in our culture today. You try to point out to someone, perhaps someone points out to you, sin. How do you respond to that? Well, nobody's perfect. (laughs) Well, who are you to judge me? Well, God loves me. God accepts me. Why can't you love me and accept me? Or perhaps we hear, we're called out on our sin. Perhaps we begin to feel conviction of our sin. But, But what do we do so often? Well, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as them. Well, they're doing something a lot worse. I've mentioned this before. Look around this morning. You can find somebody worse than you here. You can find somebody maybe sitting next to you on the pew. They've done a lot worse than you have. Just realize somebody's looking at you that same way. The the standard that you lower by looking to another as your standard is the same standard others lower by looking to you. We make poor comparisons for one another because we're all messed up. Well, we're all sinful, and yet so often when confronted with our sin, rather than dealing with it and looking to the Scripture to better understand how God deals with it, we just kind of excuse it away. Well, the Scripture says at times we're even blind to it. You know, Again, it's like putting these things on. I can't see a thing with these things on. I think the greater danger tomorrow might not be people looking at the sun. It's going to be everybody running into each other with these things on. You can't see anything. You know, one of the ones I looked at actually had a little thing on it that said, uh, do not operate a moving vehicle while you're wearing these. And you've probably heard a lot of times warnings are there because somebody did it. You know? it, it this blinds you. You can't see much with this on. That's exactly what sin does. Sin is a great blinder. The sin makes us think that we're okay. The sin makes us think that the problem's not with us, the problem's with everybody else. Nobody's perfect. So why even try? But friends, we need to understand that the standard of righteousness is not the world around us. The standard of righteousness is the Word of God. And this is what it says. Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor His ear dull that He cannot hear. 
So the problem's not on God's side. Where is it? But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. See, friends, sin separates us from God. And we see that in the very beginning in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sin. God doesn't just graciously show them out of the garden. The Scripture says God drove them out of the garden. We see His grace there. He promises a Redeemer is going to come who's going to crush the head of the serpent. But He has to separate them from His presence. Why? Because of their sin. Sin separates us from God. And so we need to understand the depths of sin. And we need to understand that what it does, it separates us from God. And I think the people are beginning to understand that in Exodus 20. Because notice, they are separating themselves. God's not telling them here, listen, uh, you've got to understand now all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. That's truth. That's in Romans. But He doesn't need to tell them that. Why? Because He's given them His Word and He showed them His holiness and that alone is enough for them to realize we cannot be in His presence. And they begin to pull away. They begin to separate themselves because of their sin. And they begin to look for a mediator. And that's the role we've seen Moses play throughout Exodus, that one of a mediator. And he's the one that goes to God on behalf of the people and comes to the people on behalf of God. And so they realize here that they desperately need someone to mediate for them. But because they can't go before God on their own, at least they die. And so this brings us then to that, that third question that, points us towards a greater mediator. How does Jesus transform then how we should respond to this understanding of God's holiness and our sin? And where it brings us is to the understanding that while Moses was a mediator, Jesus is the greater mediator. Uh, point three there in your outline, Jesus is our mediator. And that's what we see in the book of Hebrews. We heard from a passage earlier i'll read you another one hebrews chapter 3 beginning there in verse 1 and therefore holy brothers you who share in a heavenly calling consider jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him just as moses was faithful to all god's house for jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more glory, honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are His house, if indeed... We hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Friends, the truth of the Scripture is you and I today can approach the mountain of God. But we can't do it in our own accord. We can do it because of what Christ Jesus did for us. And I hope you know this all-important scriptural truth that the only way we can approach the mountain of God 
is through Jesus Christ. And one of the great wicked lies of the enemy in our culture today is that you can choose or you can pick how you will approach a holy God. But God Himself has told us how we might access Him. And it's not through the way of our choosing. It's through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus says of Himself in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. So, so let's be honest for a second. Well, what about your good deeds? But what about your external conformity? What about your outward appearance? I mean, I'm looking around this morning. Pretty good looking group of people. I've got a seersucker jacket on. Look at, you see my socks? We dress up pretty nice, don't we? And we can come in here on Sunday morning. We can dress up real nice. And how was your week? Oh, my week was great. How was your, oh, my week was great. When we were yelling in the car on the way here. How are you doing this morning? Oh, I'm doing fine when you are not doing fine. And everything about us, when we walk into the church, so often we're tempted to put on this appearance, this outward appearance. Oh, it's all good. It's all good. Why? Because, friends, that's exactly what we think we're going to do before a holy God one day. And so often the way we truly walk through life, as long as my good outweighs my bad, well, I know I shouldn't have done that, so I'll do this to make up for it. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And here's the reason for that. Because Jesus is the only one who's ever lived a perfect life. Jesus is the only one who went to the cross and paid the due penalty for your sin and for my sin. Jesus is the only one who knows the depths of how messed up you and I really are. See, we can put on this outward appearance for everybody else, but Jesus knows exactly what's inside and what's in our heart. Have you ever been scared to tell somebody the truth about something you did because of how they might respond? Have you ever feared rejection? You know, man, if they, if they find this out, they're going to be so disappointed. If they find this out, that, you know, and, and you go through all these scenarios, often over trivial things, sometimes pretty serious things, but the point is, is that oftentimes we're scared if somebody finds out just about one thing how they're going to respond. Friend, imagine for a moment what it would be if those around you today knew every wicked, dark thing that had ever gone through your mind. Much less what you've done and what I've done. Probably most of you are aware, just the last couple years, there was a website hack. This website was a place people would go to when they wanted to enter into immoral, adulterous relationships with other people and and this hack then exposed who was a part of this service. And a number of people just took their lives. That they couldn't deal with the thought of how somebody might respond if they knew a deep, dark secret about them. 
I don't think that any of us in this room would sign up or volunteer to have everything that goes through our mind just broadcast to the world. And I tell you what, if somehow that did happen, there'd be a for sale sign on Fairfield Hill. <laughs> I don't know how I could preach to you if you knew everything went through my head, and I don't know if I could preach to you if I knew everything going through your head right now. See, God's grace is we don't know all that, do we? But, but God does know it. God, in fact, tells us in the Word, He knows how messed up you and I are better than we even know how messed up we are. And yet, knowing those things, He demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ went to the cross for us. And He gives us this wonderful invitation. He says that we can be forgiven. We can be cleansed. Christ can be our mediator. So we need not fear going up the mountain because Christ has already gone up it on our behalf. And when we stand one day before a holy God, we won't stand pleading our case, talking about how our goods might outweigh our bads. We will stand covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is what saves us. On our best day, we fall dreadfully short. And we deserve eternal condemnation. But God's grace towards us is this. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's the power of the cross. And that's the power of Christ being our mediator. And friends, that is where our hope and our confession lies today. And so... Perhaps God's prompting to you this morning might be to, to stop trying to fake it till you make it. <laughs> or whatever nonsense like that you picked up from the TV preacher this week. And just to be honest with the Lord about your sin. To just come before the Lord confessing who you really are. Because guess what? He already knows. And if you've yet to put your full hope and trust in Christ, then to do that and to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ and to hold firm to the promise of the Gospel that if we confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. And that one day we will stand on the mountain with God not based on what we did, entirely based on what Christ has done. And we will glory in the holiness of God. We will not run from the holiness of God. And perhaps you've made that confession and you have trusted in Christ, but perhaps things have grown a bit dull. Perhaps you've become weary in your walk. Perhaps you've begun to make excuses for sin. Perhaps you're not where you know God desires you to be in your walk with Him. And friends, what you need is a revival. What you need is for the embers to be stoked and the fire to burn brightly once again. And that comes through a better understanding of the holiness of God. Because it's only once you realize how great God is that you can understand how wicked you are, and it's only once you understand how wicked you are that you can understand how great the Gospel is. And so if that doesn't excite you or bring you hope or lift a burden this morning, then you may not understand what the Gospel is. That the Gospel is no fortune cookie. 
that the gospel is no magic eight ball that we just shake when we need an answer. The gospel is our only hope in life and death. And in the world that confronts us every morning when we wake up our eyes that's filled with death and disease and sickness and worry and anxiety and fret, the Gospel is the only thing that we might cling to that can give us only hope. It is the only hope we have. Everything else is failing or will fail. But it is the Gospel that we can trust in. And that Gospel simply says this, that God is holy That we fall short of God's glory because we are sinners. That Christ died on the cross for our sin. And that if we will confess our sin, and if we will confess Jesus as Lord and repent and turn from sin, we might be saved. It's that simple. And yet, at the same time, it's that simple truth that we need to hear day in and day out. And so during our time of response today, The invitation is simply to consider the gospel and what response you might make to it today. If you would stand with me as we pray and as we sing together. Fathers, we've already stated this morning there's a great deal of talk right now about putting some glasses on tomorrow. I pray that right now in this moment that you might remove some blinders from us. That that you might help us to see clearly the, the glorious truth of the gospel. Lord, that we might see clearly our, our sin and our desperate need for Christ. And Lord, that in this moment that we would turn to Christ and trust in you. But Lord, I pray for those this morning who are struggling, who are hurting, who, who are suffering, who are anxious who are worried, who are greatly burdened with the worries, with the troubles of this life. I pray for those, Lord, who are are wrestling with sin right now, and perhaps they've believed some of the lies of the enemy. Perhaps they've rationalized their sin. Perhaps they've made light of their sin. God, I pray you'd lead them to repentance. I pray for all of us that we might put our hope fully in Christ today and that you'd empower us to do this through the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.